This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Fleet Mall. Fleet is a longtime student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and is an Acharya, or Senior Mindfulness Meditation Teacher, in the Shambhala International Meditation Community. Fleet founded the Prison Dharma Network, now called the Prison Mindfulness Institute, in 1989, while he was in the midst of serving a 30-year sentence with no parole for drug smuggling at a maximum security federal prison medical facility. In addition, in 1991, Fleet founded the National Prison Hospice Association, launching a movement that now includes hospice programs in over 75 state and federal prisons. Fleet Mall is the author of the book Dharma in Hell, the prison writings of Fleet Mall, and leads prison programs, meditation retreats, chaplaincy and hospice trainings, activist trainings, bearing witness retreats, and street retreats throughout the world. He's also the founder and executive director of the Peacemaker Institute, and he's co-founder of the Upaya Chaplaincy Program. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Fleet Mall and I spoke about how the only way out is through, and how this teaching helped Fleet deal with regret and fueled his focus to create as much good as possible while he was in prison. We also talked about the teaching of basic goodness and how Fleet tested this view of basic goodness while he was in prison and how it informs his work today with the Prison Mindfulness Institute. We also talked about service and how devoting ourselves to caring for others keeps us from being small and only focused on our own suffering. And finally, we talked about a vision for transformation of the criminal justice system and what it might mean to work for the creation of an enlightened society. Here's my conversation with the very truth-telling and inspiring Fleet Mall. Now, you are a very unusual person and have lived such an unusual (laughs) life, it's true, that you spent approximately 15 years on the inside of the prison system as an inmate dharma practitioner, if you will, and now you've spent something like 15 years on the outside, but bringing dharma and meditation into prisons. And to begin our conversation, I'd love it if you could help dispel what I think are misconceptions, and I imagine there are many, that people might have about meditating in prison and what that's actually like. 
Okay, I'll do my best. It, it was actually 14 years that I spent inside and uh, then some, some time under supervision when I got out. Interestingly enough, I also spent 10 years as a practitioner before I went to prison, which uh, begs the question of why I ended up in prison. Uh, suffice it to say, I was kind of thick-headed and one of those uh, folks back in the 60s and 70s who got very into the whole counterculture movement and everything that was involved in it. Prisons are uh, extremely chaotic and noisy places for the most part. And uh, so uh, they're not what most people would think of as the ideal setting for meditation or developing a meditation practice. You also have uh, very little, if any, privacy. I spent, uh, well, the first seven months in an extremely chaotic, noisy county jail. And then when I did arrive in federal prison where I did my time, uh, I spent about the first two and a half years living in a number of large dormitories. Uh, the, the first one, I think, had 28 men living in it. And then I went down to a, a 20 man and a 14 and an eight or something like that. And uh, I eventually worked my way into one of the few single cells on, on the living unit where I lived and uh, managed to hang on to that. Uh, uh, by staying uh, out of trouble for the most part uh, the rest of my my time. Uh, but even once I, and, and that was a, a real uh, gift, having that single cell, because it really allowed me to focus even more on my Dharma practice, my study, and, and gave me that space. It was still extremely chaotic just on the other side of my door. Um, in fact, in the evenings, uh, uh, from when you come back, Oh, from dinner all the way through to lights out around 1030 and then sometimes beyond, depending on whether the guard enforces lights out. It's just chaotic in the halls, you know, just groups yelling and screaming and chucking and jiving and all kinds of craziness going on. But that was always just right outside the door. But it was still a real gift having that single cell. So it's it's a challenging place to practice meditation. Actually, during the early years when I lived in those big dorms, I would either try to stay on a top bunk. Most people, you know, the seniority wise, you start off on a top bunk, then you move to a bottom bunk and then you move to a smaller room and so forth. And I preferred the top bunk because first of all, I had head clearance to be able to sit and meditate on the top bunk where you didn't on the, on the bottom bunk. And secondly, I could sit up there at night and nobody paid that much attention to me. But later I also began um, uh, clearing out the, the trash closets that they had at the entryway to these big dorms. And uh, and I'd take a folding chair and go in there, and I'd put some of the brooms and stuff outside of the closet so people could get at it. And I'd go in there and, and sit and practice sometimes for hours uh, at a time on weekends. And, and uh, it had a little window in, in the door so people look. And they, in fact, they, they'd open the door, thinking they're going in there to get something, and they'd see me and be kind of startled. And, and uh, in the summer months, it was just like a sauna. I would just sit in there and pour sweat. But it did give me the opportunity to do my practice, and um, and I was really, uh, you know, uh, the uh, getting locked up was a huge wake up call for me, obviously, and and the kind of split life I've been leading of being a Dharma practitioner on the one hand, and this kind of uh, crazy cocaine outlaw on the other hand, uh, uh, that all came to a, to an abrupt halt, and I really focused on transforming my life. So I was. Uh, I was hell bent on practicing any way I could, any time I could in prison. But, but you know, sometimes people have, have referenced prisons as monasteries, and uh, 
you know, there are some similarities in that, you know, you get three hots and a cot, right? You have, you're provided with meals and a bed. Everybody weighs more or less the same clothes. Uh, and you don't have a lot of uh, responsibilities in the outside world. But that's about where the, where the uh, uh, parallel ends. Because uh, monasteries are, you know, designed as environments to be contemplative and to support mindfulness and wakefulness. And whether they may be Catholic or, or Buddhist or other types of monasteries or Hindu ashrams, um, but they're set up to support the practice, and uh, and prisons are not that way at all. In fact, generally, uh, it's a mixture of chaos and people wanting to just numb out and kind of go to sleep and sleep their time away. Um, so uh, so people do get these ideas. But having said that, for me, because uh, the great gift was that I came in with a strong practice and a strong practice background, and with the wake up of coming to prison and the devastation of what I'd done to my son, who was nine years old when I got locked up, uh, my dedication to practice allowed me to really make that environment my monastery, even though uh, it wasn't what one would normally think of as such. Well, that's interesting. So when you hear that phrase, turning a prison into a monastery, you don't feel like, oh my God, could you please not say that kind of thing? It's so fantastical and unlike the violence and chaos that's in a prison. Please don't say that. It sounds like you actually found a way to turn, as you said, your prison experience into a practice environment, monastic environment, if you will. Yes, I did. And I actually took monastic vows for the time that I was in prison. Um, you know, it, I'm kind of ambivalent about it because, uh, you know, I've also, I was interviewed for, uh, quite a number of articles and some radio interviews and stuff, even while I was in prison. And, um, you know, sometimes interviewers would say, well, prison seems to have really worked for you. You know, it really has brought about transformation and you're doing a lot of great things with your life. And I would say yes, but I'd always have to uh, uh, also reflect that for the vast majority of people who go to prison, it's actually very damaging and they come out worse than they went in. So in general, prisons are uh, in my view, mostly pretty damaging uh, and inhumane environments. And uh, but you know, with with the strength of practice, I was able to do that. Now I'm not the only one. Uh, certainly, I'm uh, you know one of uh, the progenitors of this kind of work. Bo and Cedar Lozoff, unfortunately, lost lost Bo Lozoff to a motorcycle accident a couple of years back. But his wife Cedar continues to work. But they founded the Prison Ashram Project and the Human Kindness Foundation many many years ago. And, uh, you know, they had been in touch with many, many long-term prisoners. And, of course, through our work, we've been in touch with many lifers and long-term prisoners who have, in some really tough places, become really serious practitioners and found their own way uh, to uh, make that very hellish place uh, their their monastery, in a sense, their practice place. But it certainly doesn't lend itself to that. So I suppose you could say if you're able to do that, it's a very powerful field of practice because you're conf everything you're confronted with, you know, uh, in the outside world, you know, we have a little more control over our environment. A lot of us, at least those of us who have that privilege. And so it's often a little easier to not be so wakeful or not be so mindful because, you know, we can kind of move around in our, in our world with, uh, you know, with a lot of familiarity and a, and a sense of control, whereas in that environment, the environment's in prison, the environment is in your face constantly. And you're just immediately aware, especially if you have any background in practice, you're immediately aware of your state of mind at all times. 
because it's it's just in that you know confrontation with the environment. So um, so in that sense, it's a very powerful place to practice. Um, if you have a practice, it's probably a very challenging place for people to begin a practice. I'm curious. You talked about the noise of the environment. What did you learn from meditating in a super noisy situation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just another aspect of working with our mind. Uh, interestingly, interestingly um, at some point during prison, I remember reading a book uh, by the Korean Zen teacher, Sun Sun Im, who was famous for the expression, only don't, only don't know mind, only don't know. And uh, uh, there was this book had correspondence from students in it. And and I think it was a prisoner who was writing to him and talking about the noise and the chaos. And, and he and he spoke about it as being a very advantageous uh, opportunity for practice. So, uh, but in my experience, uh, you know, that, that was the case because when we're, when we're practicing various forms of mindfulness, awareness, meditation, shamatha, the posture meditation, uh, you know, we, we, we learn to work with all of the sense perceptions. Uh, we may start really grounding our practice in the sensate field of the body and the breath. Uh, but we also work with visual perceptions and auditory and olfactory and gustatory perceptions and and uh, and sound is one that's really immediately available and sound also is uh, can be very advantageous for practice because it's not so solid you know um, you know we can all get in working with our thoughts in uh, uh, once we have a little practice under our belts to see the ephemeral nature of thoughts and and they, they kind of come and go and they come out of nowhere, they disappear to nowhere and they're very ephemeral. And, you know, uh, it's, it's easier to, to see that kind of uh, emptiness or non-solidity um, uh, within our thoughts. Now, if you're meditating on physical contact or, or a wooden table in front of you, it might be a little harder to get that sense. But sound, kind of like thought, comes and goes and, and is uh, more ephemeral in nature. So... It's actually a very uh, interesting to, thing to practice with, perhaps from uh, a Mahamudra perspective, for example, of doing those kind of investigations into the nature of mind. But Fleet, I'm also curious, I guess, how you would deal with the pure agitation and irritation. I mean, I know for me, if I just have a neighbor who's, you know, using their lawnmower <laughs> or something like that, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to meditate while there's someone, you know, mowing their lawn next door. It's just trying to, Mm -hmm. just how irritated I would be. That's what I'm imagining. Well, again, you know, that's what I was saying about how that environment in prison is so much in your face all the time. And I really could really tell the quality of my practice all the time, especially once I had that single cell and I might be, you know, come out into the hallway because you almost always would step out into a certain level of chaos, especially in the evenings. And when I was, when my practice was kind of good, or at least felt good, and, you know, I was in that, kind of mode, I could step out into that environment and see the see and hear the chaos, feel the chaos, and just kind of go, ah, interesting. And when I when I wasn't quite in that mode, uh, you know, I'd step out there and what immediately was in my face was irritation and resistance, right? And uh so, you know, the the when when sound would come up um and and the chaos in the environment would come up, being, you know, paying attention to how I was reacting to it, whether it did bring up resistance or irritation or, or pain or aversion, 
uh, that was something to really see about my state of mind. And then noticing when, uh, when, it, when the aversion didn't arise and there was just a sort of curiosity uh, about the energy of the chaos and the noise in the environment. So that was kind of a, a, a real uh, sort of marker uh, of, uh, of practice in a certain way. And it was just interesting to experience that, uh, you know, those differences. Uh, not that at any one point in time, it's about making judgments about the practice, but, but just seeing those differences really, uh, again, kind of helped me tune into really working with my state of mind as a practice, like having having my my very state of mind be an object of the uh, mindfulness and awareness practice. Mm-hmm. Now, you also mentioned, Fleet, that when you were incarcerated originally, that you had a son who was nine years old at the time, and there you were mm-hmm. leaving, leaving your son, not being able to be there as a father. And I'm curious mm-hmm. how you worked with the regret and self-recrimination and blame how you worked with that as part of your Dharma practice? Well, I certainly, um, it was one of the great challenges. I went in the beginning, especially during the seven months I spent in a county jail during my trial and sentencing and then awaiting transfer to a federal prison. Um, it was a real dark night of the soul experience for me. And, uh, and, uh, um, once I got to the federal prison and became really engaged in that world, um, you know, I, I, at that point, you know, because I just became very engaged in teaching and serving and helping to create the first hospice program in a prison anywhere and, and teaching meditation, getting very engaged in that community that <clears throat> it wasn't, you know, that same kind of dark night of the soul experience, but, but the underlying devastation or regret just fueled my practice. I was, that, that you know that expression like practicing like one's hair is on fire really was the way I felt. I had this real urgency to practice, and I became really dedicated to eradicating any of the negativity out of my life. and And I wanted to leave my son a better legacy than just his dad went to prison. And I I had no surety at all that I would survive prison. Uh, I went in with a thirty year no parole sentence, and I and I did. It took me a few years to figure out the good time and all that, and figure out that. Uh, I would actually end up doing 14 and a half on that if I stayed out of trouble, um, which was still felt like forever at that time. And, uh, uh, but I was, uh, determined to lead a better legacy for my son than just his, his dad went to prison or even died in prison. And, uh, you know, I was in touch with my son. I stayed in touch with him. His, he and his mom, mom was from Peru. And so they moved back to Peru and uh, I stayed in touch with them by correspondence and a little bit by phone where I could afford to every now and then. And But my family very kindly brought my son up every other year um, from South America. And he spent during his school vacation down there, which was the winter time here, he came up and spent uh, a month or two months living with my family. And they would bring him down on, on weekends to see me. And uh, another time, um, uh, close friends in the Shambhala Buddhist community, uh, which is my primary Sangha uh, community, um, also paid to bring Robert up one time to, to visit with me. And then uh, they also uh, paid for him to go up to a, 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 a youth program called uh, Sun Camp up in, uh, in Nova Scotia uh, when he was there at that time. So I was able to stay in touch with him, but but the, you know, the, the devastation and regret I felt about my son, about letting my teacher down, about letting my family down. And then as I 
as I spent time in recovery and really saw the harmful nature of the impact of what I've been involved in in terms of, of trafficking and drugs, the deep regret about you know the harm I'd, I'd caused through those activities, all that just became fuel to to really uh, just dedicate my life to practice and service um, uh, while I was in there. Now, Fleet, I'm, I'm wondering if somebody is listening and they have a level of regret in their life, but it hasn't turned into fuel. It's just something that stews around in their inner experience. They just sort of circle around in it. What might you be able to suggest to help that person find fuel from the experience instead of just more, mm-hmm. more self-terrible talk? Yeah. Well, I think there's two things. Um, one, my practice, uh, I, I'm very fortunate to have been a close student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche uh, back in the uh, 1970s and early 80s. And, um, and my practice uh, and my practice has always been really grounded in this idea of uh, basic goodness or in the uh, in more Buddhist language, perhaps Buddha nature, and really having a sense of my own inherent goodness. Uh, and so that even though I had was devastated about what I'd done and, and recognized the incredible selfishness of the decisions I've been making for so long and the negative impact that it had on my son and, and others and and the deep regret around that I felt like that, that didn't really um, obscure for me my faith in my own innate goodness and the goodness of others. And it also gave me the strength and resilience to really embrace that regret. Um, I remember listening to a, a, a videotape, I think it was Jack Cornfield, uh, while I was in prison, and he he, he referenced, uh, I, I think this is uh, the right uh, reference, but he referenced uh, 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 a placard or a sign that's on the wall of a, mon- a Christian monastery somewhere in uh, uh, England, in the United Kingdom. And uh, he'd either been there or heard about it. I can't remember the story. But the big placard that said, the only way out is through. And, and I think that's become a common expression. Um, and very much my experience. I actually, you know, for me, the, the most painful thing about being incarcerated is being separated from your loved ones. And I think most prisoners would say the same. You know, I mean, prisons vary in terms of how hellish of environment they are. There are no nice prisons. You know, people talk about country club prisons or some of the minimum security prisons. They may be better on some level, but most of them are so overcrowded that they're pretty hellish anyway. And then some prisons are just off the charts, complete hell realm. So there's a lot of cause for suffering in the environment of a prison. But still, I think for most people, the most painful thing is being separated from your loved ones. And uh, that pain for me, in terms, especially in terms of my son, would come up at times that was just it came up and just like, almost like blinding me on the spot with this. Uh, it was just like this flash of white heat, like just excruciating agony and pain that I just, it felt like I was going to die. It's just like that you couldn't withstand. And I remember this hitting me in my cell and feeling like I just wanted to smash my head on the concrete wall. And somehow because of my practice and I was practicing a lot, um, and I didn't try to do this. It just happened. But, uh, you know, there was that agonizing pain that was just like felt like it was going to burn my brain away. Or, and, and, uh, and then just very naturally, a kind of awareness formed around that and expanded. 
And that pain and agony dissolved in the midst of that larger awareness. And then there I was on the other side of it feeling bliss, which was a very disturbing experience the first time it happened. Uh, it was like, you know, one minute I'm in this devastation and agony about my son and not being there for him and being separated from him. And the next moment I'm in this blissful state of heightened awareness. And, you know, that was very disturbing. But, you know, over time I kind of came to recognize what it was and realizing that by, you know, by embracing the pain, embracing the, the regret, embracing the devastation, that on the other side of that is some kind of release, some kind of freedom. And, uh, and it doesn't, uh, invalidate the feelings or, or invalidate the context of the feelings, but but somehow it it, it moves us beyond that personal identification uh, with it and, and can really be a springboard into uh, I think great compassion um, um, because we we tap into uh, a more universal um, uh, level of it and and I think that was another I think it was a combination. Of that I was, you know, I was practicing several hours every day, and many more hours on weekends, and doing retreats whenever I could. And I was also very engaged in hospice care on a daily basis, taking care of men who were dying, and you know, finding ways to give back, and and you know, holding my the intention around my son and that work. So it was a combination of those things that allowed me to embrace the the pain, embrace the regret, and have it actually be a springboard to deeper awareness and deeper compassion. So I don't know if that makes any sense for someone who's just working with re- regret in their life, but I think that, that the basic idea is we have to work with it. There's no there's no escape from it. You can't jump around it or go over it. It's, we do have to find some way to embrace it and be willing to feel it and and own it and go through it. And and I think that's what that's the spiritual journey with with our whole human experience is our willingness to really feel uh, every inch of our humanity, the light and the dark. And to be willing to to go through it, and and um, uh, I, I think and really own it and and move through it and embrace it. I think that's where um, our our evolutionary uh, possibilities lie. Now you mentioned this teaching about basic goodness that you learned from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and mm-hmm. I want to go into that a little bit more because it seems like if any situation might make one question the basic goodness of others. You talked about it in terms of relationship to yourself, but let's just talk about other people being basically good. It would be being in a prison and seeing really messed up, potentially, people with tremendous cruelty and, you know, behavior that might seem very hard to accept. Really, this person has basic goodness. So talk to me about that a little bit. What's well, interesting you bring that up because <clears throat> I had a, a bit of a project going for a while in prison. It was kind of a participatory phen- phenomenological research project, I guess. And, uh, you know, there, there were quite a, this question came up for me. I, I'm original, originally from Missouri, the, the show me state. So I'm kind of skeptical by nature and had a good, you know, uh, uh, skeptical, uh, rationalist, modern Western education and so forth. And so, um, even though I've always, you know, had a sense of, of that sense of basic goodness, I think even before ever being introduced to those teachings and, and, and had a, 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 a real uh, sense of it and, and faith in it, but still that this, these questions came up exactly as you're saying. And there were a lot of uh, candidates in that environment, both among my fellow prisoners and among some of the uh, prison staff and the guards who, 
would make you wonder, right? And so I actually was, I was kind of following some of these characters and, uh, you know, looking for that, that person that actually doesn't have basic goodness to try to, you know, to prove the theory or disprove the, uh, the, the null hypothesis or something. And, and, uh, so, um, interestingly enough, um, every time this went on for quite some years until I finally gave it up. Um, but every time I, I kind of thought I had my man, you know, this was mostly male prisoners and, you know, mostly male guards, some female guards, but, but every time I thought I'd found that person, that this person clearly does not have basic goodness or has no redeemable uh, qualities at all. The minute I thought I, you know, had found that person, they would inevitably reveal their heart in some way, reveal their humanity to me, reveal their basic goodness in some way. It, it was uncanny how it would happen. And some of the toughest you know, guards that just seemed like they, they probably chewed nails for breakfast, you know, and just came in. Just you ever got nothing but kind of hate and venom from them, uh, you know. I, I would be both, you know, and then boom, that person would reveal their humanity and their basic goodness to me. It was uncanny. Finally, retired the project after after a number of years. How does that perspective about the basic goodness in yourself and all other people? How does that inform the way you go about your life and work? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, very importantly, uh, because, you know, working with uh, a lot of the work I do and, the, and the, all the wonderful people in the world that we support and train through our organization to do this kind of work, work with a lot of people who are suffering, work with a lot of people with a lot of trauma in their backgrounds, work with a lot of people who are in some uh, uh, kind of dysfunctional situation in the present, their present situation. And it could be very easy to to get into a mode of wanting to fix them or having seeing their brokenness or uh, you know having some you know kind of rescuer mentality, which is the antithesis of how we train people to work and how I work with people. Uh, I always work from a perspective of seeing someone's wholeness, seeing their intrinsic healthiness, their intrinsic sanity, their own wisdom, and really what what we're doing in the work is is holding space for another person to find their own feet so they can do their own healing work. And, and really, I think it's really important that we, even though, you know, people can be in a very unresourced state and, and need help, we can all find ourselves in that place, but to, but to really work from a perspective of seeing their, their own strengths and their intrinsic goodness and wholeness and integrity so that that's, that's what we're mirroring back to them. And that's what we're supporting them and discovering themselves. Um, is a very different way of working with people than when we kind of focus on, you know, people being broken and, and we're going to come in and somehow uh, fix them or put them back together. Um, so I, I, I think it's it's really important. Actually, we're, we're now, you know, we've been working with prisoners and training people to work with prisoners for over 26 years. And in the last five or six years, we've had the opportunity to start working with correctional officers and other, other corrections professionals um, training them in mindfulness-based uh, um, um, uh, programs of various kinds. And, and we're especially focusing now on a program that we call mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency because correctional officers are at extreme risk for, uh, for depression, uh, for anxiety, depression, and suicide, for early death and, and severe illness from all the chronic stress-related illnesses, 
officers who've worked in a secure institution for more than 20 years have a life expectancy of as, as low as 58 years, if you can imagine that. And uh, many of them retire and die. And and there's a lot of suicides. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, almost a pandemic of suicides and corrections, much worse than law enforcement and as bad or worse than among combat veterans. So we're bringing this kind of programming now to correctional officers and also to law enforcement and first responders. And the first major contract we got uh, was, uh, uh, actually we did some work here in, in Rhode Island with, with corrections professionals here. And then we got a contract in Oregon to do work there. And we're still working there uh, very proactively. And uh, we were told that, that the reason we got the contract of, instead of a different provider was that they really liked our approach grounded in intrinsic healthiness. Then, and they felt the other organization, although they did good work, was coming in and kind of, kind of with a pathological perspective, kind of saying, you know, your, your staff are really all suffering from PTSD and they're all traumatized and we're going to bring this program in to kind of fix them. And, and instead, we were coming from the perspective of, of recognizing their intrinsic healthiness and giving them a skill-based training to help them build on that and to build their resilience, more of an assets-building approach. So I, I, think, I think this perspective of, of basic goodness or intrinsic healthiness is, is incredibly important to the work we do. Now, Fleet, if, if it's okay, I'm going to push this just a little bit further, because um, mm-hmm. I'm imagining someone listening who, I don't know if it's a show-me-state kind of thing or, or what it is, but who's like, you know, come on, there are these people who are sociopaths, these people who mm-hmm. have, you know, hurt children, and really we're going to focus on their intrinsic health? Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, that's what people often bring up is what about the sociopath? And of course, that's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty broad uh, category. And you'd have to be clear about, about defining that. But people do uh, really heinous and harmful things. Very interestingly, a colleague of mine who's done work in San Quentin for many years, and, and he, he leads these wonderful long-term uh, programs with lifers and, and people doing really uh, long-term incarceration. And, and one of the groups, uh, one of the uh, prisoners made the comment uh, that hurt people hurt people. And we, we know that people who, who get involved in harmful, violent, uh, uh, destructive behavior have themselves been hurt. I mean, it's just inevitable. We, we just know that people who, who become abusers have been abused themselves. And, uh, and that's just without question. Now, fortunately, not all people who've experienced some kind of abuse in their childhood become abusers, but all people who are involved in some kind of chronic abuse and violence, you, inevitably you will find that damage and that, and that abuse of some kind, psychological, emotional, sexual, physical, uh, in their childhood. So, um, so that's the first, that's the first point. Second is, you know, it appears uh, what we know from research that, uh, and we know more and more about the brain all the time, that with some types of uh, individuals where there's some range of uh, what would be called sociopathic, um, there uh, that the empathy circuitry is simply not functioning. Um, it's not hooked up. And people are able to harm others because they don't really see the other. It's their, their objectifying. They don't really see or recognize the personhood of the other. And of course, that makes people very dangerous, especially when they're hurt and they're full of, you know, uh, fear and anger and, and resentment and pain. And and um, 
So um, I think we don't know yet whether we will learn how to help people reconnect the empathy circuitry in their brain in a in a, a kind of a you know a programmatic way that we know with this certain uh, these certain type of people that suffer from this particular kind of sociopathic condition that will be able to do these things and it will reach those results. Uh, at the same time, though, we have countless stories of of uh, people who have committed what most people would consider very heinous crimes, uh, who have turned their lives around and who are leading exemplary lives. Um, uh, even uh, people who've, uh, you know, certainly people who have murdered um, and, uh, uh, you know, um, actually one of the lowest recidivism rates of, of any type of crime is, is uh, that of murder. Um, and, and, you know, many murders, of course, are, are crimes of passion. And it's very different from if you have a situation where you have uh, someone who's uh, chronically violent or, or a serial murderer or killer or something like that is very different. Um, but, but there are many uh, people who have committed murder, who have turned their lives around, become exemplary human beings. There are people who have committed rape and turned their lives around and become exemplary human beings. There are people who have committed uh, sexual offenses against children and uh, have turned their lives around. So we don't yet know uh, that we can, you know, have confidence that we can do this in a programmatic way. But having said all that, uh, the true sociopath is an extremely small number of people who are in prison. Um, we're talking about a very uh, small percent of the people who are in prison today uh, fall into that category. And uh, so uh, uh, I think we can, uh, you know, the vast majority of prisoners are nonviolent or actually nonviolent offenders. But even among those who have committed violence, it's a very small percentage who would be uh, described clinically as sociopathic. Now, in a sense, whether the empathy circuitry is so, I'll just the last thing I'll say for me, you know, and I've been around such people. I did time with such people. I've met people, such people on the inside. I've met such people on the outside. And for me, uh, my intuitive sense is that even though, you know, their brain may be dysfunctional in a certain way, there may be damage there. Uh, their empathy circuitry may not be hooked up. They may be sociopathic and dangerous, but uh, I can still see the humanity. Uh, I went, I've spent time in Rwanda with genocide heirs. I've been to prisons, uh, uh, a number of occasions to prisons and prison farms and sat knee to knee with uh with men and women who committed horrific genocide crimes. And 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 initially, I, I remember being in one prison farm and looking at this, this we were sitting just in a, in a circle with, with about a dozen men who had all committed just horrific crimes. And, and initially, I got this flash that I was actually seeing some kind of evil. And it was the first time I'd re even really had that, that thought. But as I sat longer with those men, but I realized that's not what I was seeing. What I was seeing in their eyes was deep, deep fear. And and I could see the humanity behind the fear. I mean, that's a my personal experience, but mm -hmm. that's what I rely on. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts 
just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Fleet, you mentioned that relatively early on in your prison experience, you said that you became engaged in a certain way, that you started a hospice project and other projects inside prison. And I noticed part of me thinks like, really? You, you, there's a way to be a, an innovator and launch projects in the midst of being in prison? How does that work? Well, it is kind of, I'm not the only prisoner who's done such things, but it is a little bit unusual. And, and you know, in that environment, if if you walk up to a any staff person and say, you know, we'd like to try this, or maybe we could try this, or could we start that program, or could we do this? The first answer is always no. And if you say why, they may, you know, they may want to lock you up just for questioning them. Uh, but if they are going to give you an answer, then they'll, they'll, they'll rattle off a story about, well, we used to do something like that, but boom, 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 this happened and we don't do it anymore because it got abused or whatever. And, and so that's the kind of environment you're in. You're also in an environment where, you know, it is what, uh, uh, sociologists call a total institution, which means it's a total, totalitarian environment. In other words, resistance is futile. And the place where I was, which was a federal prison hospital, maximum security federal prison hospital, I was one of the general population inmates there that are just there to help run the place, to work in food service or hospital orderlies or the carpentry shop. Because I had an education, I taught school. That was my day job for 14 years. Uh, Nine to five, I taught school, helping other prisoners get their GED, learn to read and so forth and, um, or learn English. And, uh, uh, but at any rate, this this was there was a thousand uh, there were about thirteen hundred prisoners, about six hundred medical, about about uh, four hundred psychiatric, and then about three hundred of the general population inmates. And uh, you know, if you tried to buck the system, you would literally be in the psychiatric wing somewhere in four point restraints on a concrete bench full of thorazine, getting hosed down at night. I mean, literally. I mean, you know, you cannot buck the system in there. Um, you know, and you, they can, you know, prisoners do, I mean, they get thrown in a hole again and again, and then they'll, you know, to they, they get any access to a law book, they'll start trying to file grievances and file lawsuits. And, you know, then depending on the system, then they might start shipping them from system to system or between county jail and county jail into another prison, another prison. So they don't have access to the law books, but it's pretty tough to buck the system. If you buck the system, you're really going to pay for it. So, you know, I was there, I was, I wanted to, you know, I realized this is going to be a huge chunk of my life and I wanted to do something with it. I had the inspiration of my spiritual teacher, Chogam Trungpa there on my, right on my shoulder all the time. This man who, for me, had just dedicated his life 24-7 to waking others up and serving humanity. And so, and I was in this world of tr- tremendous suffering. I mean, that was actually when I first arrived at that federal prison. As you can imagine, I was pretty caught up in the drama of my own situation. I just received this 30-year-old 30-year no-parole sentence. I thought I would be 65 years old when I got out, and I was just caught in the drama of my own circumstances. And within a couple of days of being in this federal prison and seeing around me men in prison who were who were blind and being guided around by somebody uh, who were uh, paraplegic or quadriplegic and being wheeled around by a wheel in a wheelchair by someone, or who were emaciated from cancer or AIDS, and and will you know just seeing the and seeing 
men from the psychiatric wing doing the Thorazine two-step down the hall and talking. You know, I was just surrounded by all this suffering. And it, it really woke me up and snapped me out of that preoccupation with my own situation and uh, really inspired me to, to figure out some way to show up and serve in this place. Um, so I became very dedicated to to, uh, to doing that. And I was sort of like, I'm trying to figure out, so how in, in an environment where you have absolutely no power at, at all, and the answer to everything is no. How do you how do you get anything done? And I really relied on my Buddhist training and my training from Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, he always placed a, a great emphasis on skillful means. So it wasn't so much getting caught in what's right or wrong or justice and injustice. Not that we aren't concerned about right and wrong and justice and injustice, but more focusing on what works and what doesn't work, what's beneficial and what's not beneficial. So I was always saying, okay, how do I work with this situation? Where, and I ca- I came to see that human beings, even even the most challenging human beings among my fellow prisoners and staff and the prison staff, you know, we all have these buttons on. It's kind of like a vending machine. It's probably not a great analogy, but you know, you push this button, you get one thing. You push another button, you get another thing. And uh, I I found that everybody's got a human being some button somewhere. And if you go up to staff and push their authority button, you know, that's what you're going to get. But if you if you're considerate and professional and patient and you work with people, I found you could get things done. And uh, and in taking that approach, rather than a combative or an adversarial approach, uh, managed to start with another uh, inmate and the help of uh, a, a staff psychologist and a staff chaplain, we started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere. And then I started a national organization and got that model out into the world all while I was in prison. And there's now 70 or 80 hospices in state and federal prisons around the country and started uh, Prison Dharma Network, what's now called Prison Mindfulness Institute from my prison cell. And none of those things would they have given me permission to do. I just did it and, and kept working with people and working with people and finding a way to um, to engage them with uh, with kindness and courtesy. And, and, and over time it worked. Um, it's very unusual, but uh, I'm very grateful to my training uh, that allowed me to get that done, and very allowed, and very grateful to all the staff who did cooperate with me uh, in in allowing those things to happen. You know, Fleet. When I was reading a book that's a collection of your writings, this book called Dharma in Hell, the last chapter is on service and how really your own engagement in service was a huge part of your own transformative process while you were in prison. And I thought of how often people have this idea that conditions need to be different before I start to serve. I need to have accomplished this or that, or you know, before I volunteer, I need to you know, have made a certain amount of money. I don't really have the time. And I just thought, here was Fleet in prison, dedicating himself to being of service. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that provided a path of transformation for you. Yeah, it was a it was a huge part of uh, of my path, and I was I'm very grateful that I was inspired in that direction by my teacher. Um, uh, not so much that he was telling me this is what you need to do in prison, but just by the example of his life. And um, you know, interestingly, um, when when I you know, I started a meditation group not long after arriving at the prison, and that was kind of an interesting story in of itself because I went to the chapel. And there was a, a, a there were there were two or three staff chaplains, and the one I spoke to that day uh, was uh, a woman. She was a Methodist uh, minister, I think, 
and I asked her, you know, I said, I'm a Buddhist and a meditator and, and I'm, uh, trained as a teacher. And, and I wondered if we had any kind of meditation or yoga group or anything like that in the prison. And if not, uh, I would like to try to get something started. And she said, well, we don't have anything like that. And said, prisoners aren't starting anything around here. Um, it has to be started by an outside group. And we've got a long list of organizations that want to start programs here. So forget about it. <laughs> So I, I, I looked, I had, I had noticed that the actual chapel space outside her office was empty. And I said, well, would you mind if I just go in there and sit and meditate in silence? And I, she was kind of, I could tell she was looking for a reason to say no, but she couldn't come up with one. So I did. And I just started coming down at times when I knew it was empty and started sitting and got some other guys to come sit with me. And, and over time, we just kind of, uh, they, they came to accept us and we became a regular uh, prison group. Um, but at any rate, in the early days of, of, of you know, um, uh, I would put some posters up around the institution. I worked for the education department, so I had the ability to go around and put up posters for education programs. And, and you know, guys or guys would meet me and get interested. In, but guys would would come to the group uh, in the chapel for our meditation group. We met on Saturdays and, and Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings and Saturday mornings. And, uh, you know, to begin with, I noticed that guys would come and uh, they might seem interested, but like if it was a nice day, they'd rather be outside, you know, playing softball or something or sports. And, and so I was, remember, I remember thinking, well, my fellow prisoners, they seem to be kind of a not very motivated kind of bunch. And of course, fortunately, I recognize that that is not very helpful judgmental thinking. And I said, well, maybe I'm the way I'm presenting this is not enough or not helpful. And so I was always thinking about that. But kind of what happened next was, um, there was a woman that uh, I connected with who was able to come into the prison and share some Dharma teaching with us. Her name was Mary Jo Meadow, and she was a student of Joseph Goldstein, uh, but she was also involved in contemplative uh, Christianity. Uh, she was like a third order Francisca, Franciscan, I think. And she was uh, very involved in bringing Vipassana, like the insight meditation, to 12-step groups. And she had this whole approach to integrating uh, the 12-step recovery model with the Pashna meditation. So we got her in, and I invited some of the men from the 12-step uh, group I was very involved with to come. And so we got some of them, those involved. Now I had a group of men, including myself, to kind of do my research on, right, My uh, uh, who were uh, uh, doing both the 12-step work and the uh, meditation. I started to see more change. Then when we started the hospice program, I naturally recruited men from uh, the meditation group and the hospice and the uh, 12-step work, not exclusively because we recruited men of all different faiths. Uh, but I had some men then who were doing uh, the meditation group, the 12-step work, and the hospice service. And some were doing uh, some other kind of genuine sort of spiritual work, some really committed uh, uh, spiritual path other than the Buddhist path. But they were involved in the 12-step work and the, and the service, uh, the hospice service. And I started to, I started to see really deep change. And, you know, this, the hospice service here, we were, you know, it was kind of different than being a hospice volunteer on the outside. We were really like surrogate family members because these men were terribly isolated. Many of them, you know, they were sent there from pen, the, the high security penitentiaries. All the prisoners who came for medical care, psychiatric care to this federal prison came from the major U.S. penitentiaries like Lewisburg and Atlanta and Lompoc and so forth. 
But uh, oh, so they were very isolated because for many of these men serving a long time, they they weren't that connected to their families on the outside anymore. And and their their real close friends or their family were their fellow prisoners back at some penitentiary. Or if they still were connected to their family, most tended to be from the East Coast and West Coast. And this was in the middle of the country. And most were uh, uh, many were African-American, many Latino. Many of their families couldn't afford to come visit them or if they could, they could come once during their illness. And so, you know, we we spent time with them every day, hours with them every day up there on our meal breaks, our dinner breaks, evenings, weekends. And uh, so and we were doing every kind of care but medical care, you know, bathing them, uh, psychosocial care, spiritual care, helping them with the practicalities, like taking them out to the yard, taking them to the chapel, helping them write letters home and so forth. And so uh, and you really became closely identified with them. And, and you realize that there, but for the grace of whatever, you know, go you, you know, the uh, many of them were younger and, and dying of age. And you realize it could easily happen to you or they're dying of cancer. We actually had two hospice volunteers who were great volunteers who were healthy and became sick while they were there, ended up in the hospital, ended up as hospice patients. And one of them was a very close friend of mine, and the other one ended up being my hospice patient. So, you know, it really gave you a powerful sense of your own mortality was in your face all the time. And and at the same time, these men, they would, they would you know, prisoners have pretty good radar with each other. And, and if they'd check you out. If they felt they could trust you, they just pulled you in and made you like their their brother, their their son, their father, whatever the age relationship was, and became a very powerful uh, relationship. And, and you know, one of the po- most powerful things I think about service altogether is the value of simply getting our attention off ourselves and onto somebody else. <laughs> because most of our suffering is caused by that we're too focused on our own on our own needs. And it's not to say that we're supposed to abandon our own needs, but you know, it's kind of the conundrum of, of even of spiritual work, I think, because we're, we're suffering, right? And, you know, to one degree or another, maybe we have some kind of hole in our gut for our pain or childhood pain. And we, we naturally think by focusing more on ourselves, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but we actually make ourselves and everyone else more miserable in that way. And most spiritual paths begin with a kind of self-focus. So how do you do that without it becoming narcissistic and without it just increasing, uh, you know, the pain? So, and the self-identification. So I think service is a real antidote to that. You actually spend some time where you're really focused on another's suffering, and and it's not about you; it's about them. I think that is just incredibly powerful and transformative. Now, Fleet, there are so many things that I'd like to talk with you about, but just a couple of more topics that I want to be sure to cover. Mm-hmm. One is that I know that you've explored and investigated quite deeply what is needed right now in terms of transforming the prison system, making it a system that actually works for our society, instead of, you've pointed out even in this conversation, many of the aspects of the prison system that don't help rehabilitate people. So what would you say, if you were going to give me your kind of pith manifesto about transforming the prison system? What's required? Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, we are at a time over the last couple of years where there is a mood of reform in the country, and uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum are realizing that the, the system is broken, uh, that it's both a policy failure and a moral failure, and, and really an embarrassment that we're incarcerating 25% of the world's prisoners and and we're and we're doing a lousy job of it 
And uh, so there is there is an opportunity for reform that's quite new. Even six or seven years ago, to us, it felt like we were just lighting candles in the darkness, and the darkness was growing. Even though we were new, we were doing really good work and helping a lot of people. So I, in terms of what's needed, we're working on a number of fronts. One is to to establish mindfulness. Sec- the reason we changed the name of our organization from Prison Dharma Network to Prison Mindfulness Institute uh, was to we still very much support chapel-based and faith-based, Dharma-based programs throughout the prison system. We feel it's very important. But we also wanted to get secular mindfulness-based interventions into the mainstream of corrections, into rehabilitation programming, uh, pre-release and re-entry programming, drug and alcohol treatment programming, because unfortunately, only a minority of prisoners will ever access chapel programming. So uh, we're working hard to establish mindfulness-based interventions like our Path of Freedom program, which is a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum, and and some other programs that colleagues of ours have started around the country, similar programs. We're working very hard to do the research to establish those as evidence-based practice for the field of corrections. So that's that's one avenue. It's, we feel it's very important because up till now, the only thing that's really considered evidence-based for prisoner programming is cognitive behavioral treatment. And of course, there is a mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral model. So, And our Path of Freedom program includes part of the cognitive behavioral model as well. So we're working very hard to do that. That's very important so we can mainstream these kind of interventions into the field of corrections. We also feel it's not enough just to work with prisoners. So fortunately, we've been getting the opportunity over the last four or five years to work with corrections professionals as well. And we're now uh, offering what we call a mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency training. We're also doing some mindfulness-based motivational interviewing training. That's a Motivational interviewing is considered a best practice in case management for probation and parole and case managers. But we're doing these kind of mindfulness-based trainings with more and more correctional staff. And we're doing research around all those so that we can demonstrate that these are also evidence-based approaches. And, uh, you know, corrections professionals are just off the charts at risk for anxiety, depression, suicide, all the chronic stress-related illnesses, and have a very low life expectancy if they've been working in a secure facility for more than 20 years. So uh, we're addressing that need, which corrections is starting to awaken to. Um, We're also beginning to look at the whole system front to back. We launched a... uh, a project in in collaboration with the Berkeley Law School, well, with one entity at the Berkeley Law School uh, two and a half years ago. We're calling it the Mindful Justice Initiative. And it's to work with the whole system front to back and look at how can we bring reform to this whole criminal justice system, including law enforcement, the courts, corrections, reentry, post-release programming, uh, victim advocates, you know, the whole spectrum of uh, the criminal justice system. And how can we uh, and get engaged in this wave of reform that's in the air now and bring the mindfulness perspective to this and what it can add to that so we can create a downsized, much more humane, more effective, and more compassionate, more mindful criminal justice system. So we had our first conference. Uh, uh, the Fetzer Institute sponsored our first conference this past September. We had 24 uh, very influential leaders from every part of the criminal justice system, and we did a we we went out and did workshops in all the areas where there has not yet been mindfulness-based programming. So there's been a lot of prisoner programming, continues to be. There's, there, we've been doing work with correctional officers. But we, we went out and did workshops with community corrections professionals, with judges, with, with probation officers, with public defenders, with uh, district attorneys, and, uh, and did, re, did 
had papers written around all this and all this built towards this meeting at, at the Thatcher Institute Seasons Conference Center last September and a whole new round of initiatives is coming out of that. So we're working with others and collaborators to, to, uh, to engage this national effort to come up with front-to-back solutions that have a mindfulness perspective. And then finally, as, as, as the mainstream gets interested in mindfulness and mindfulness-based interventions, we all know the mindfulness movement, what some call the secular or non-sectarian mindfulness movement, had just taken off. And uh, healthcare, education, uh, starting to move into corrections and law enforcement with our work and others on many sectors of society. And the question is, who's going to deliver this? Because up until now, most of the mindfulness-based programming in the mainstream has been brought in to various sectors of the mainstream by Dharma practitioners as volunteers. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn's organization, the Center for Mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts, has led the way in, especially in healthcare, in getting professionals engaged in mindfulness, becoming mindfulness teachers, uh, and had some success there. But it's mostly been the Dharma people. But that's a very small pool. Uh, and a very small pool among those who've been trained as teachers or want to do this kind of work. So clearly for any of this kind of go to scale is the mainstream's waking up and saying, we want this, that it's becoming a no brainer really from, from preschool through to uh, the last stage of our life to include some kind of mindfulness and some kind of social emotional learning. I mean, it's just becoming a no brainer to give people the tools to manage their own physiology, to manage their own emotions and to be more present, more aware. And and how do we manage this complex thing called the human body and the human brain? We now have the simple tools for being much more in charge of our own situation. So that's becoming a no-brainer, but who's going to teach it? So we launched the Engage Mindfulness Institute uh, this past year as a division of Prison Mindfulness Institute. We call it the Engage Mindfulness Institute to you know as kind of a parallel to the Engage Buddhism movement, but also because it's not going to just be about prisons. It's we're training people, professionals and paraprofessionals, who are working with at-risk individuals and underserved or marginalized communities in various realms of the criminal justice spectrum, other areas of social service, uh, working with you know people with a lot of trauma in their backgrounds, whether it's at-risk youth or abused women or people who are experiencing homelessness. And so we started this program to train them to become mindfulness facilitators and mindfulness teachers. So we have 42 students in our first uh, year now. And if they complete this first year, it's a very daunting, very daunting curriculum. Uh, then they can go through a certification process and apply for certification. It'll be like a 200-hour certification as a mindfulness facilitator. Then there's a second year they can go on to immediately or several years later that will involve a lot more practice teaching and more training that could lead to a 500-hour certification as a mindfulness teacher. In this first year, we have teachers where even though it's a secular program, we want to make sure that they're getting the classical foundational training in mindfulness. So the first course has teachers like Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, um, Joan Halifax, uh, Elizabeth Mattis Namyal, uh, Pema Chodron. Um, we have neuroscientists like Rick Hansen and Rich Fernandez and Kelly McGonigal. Uh, we have uh, uh, senior teachers from other training programs like Diana Winston, who leads the, the MARC program at UCLA, uh, Saki Santorelli, who now heads up the Center for Mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn's organization at UMass. So we're really involving this really stellar group of online faculty, combining that with live retreats to uh, to really train people up. And uh, we're just getting started with this, but it's a, it's a long-term project to, to produce a lot more people who are trained to uh, 
to deliver this kind of work because uh, it's just going to, I mean, you know, the requests that we're beginning to get to bring this kind of mindfulness-based work to correctional officers and law enforcement is really growing. And I think it's it, there's, the floodgates are going to break pretty soon. It's really going to be a challenge to find people to, to meet the need. Now, for listeners who are inspired to get involved and support the work that Fleet Mall's doing, if you're interested in this teacher training component, you can visit engagedmindfulness.org. And if you're interested in the work that Fleet has been doing to bring mindfulness directly to prisoners, you can visit prisonmindfulness.org. Fleet, just two final questions for you. Here's the first one. On your website, it talks about how you have been inspired by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche's vision of creating an enlightened society. And I know as I hear you talk about what a vision might be for a mindful criminal justice system, I think, okay, this is a lot of aspirational, if you will, vision, a mindful criminal justice system, what it might actually be to work together to create an enlightened society. My question is, do you think this is something that actually can exist here on planet Earth, or is this something we just toil towards and keep working towards in an aspirational kind of way, but it's always somewhat out of reach? Well, I, I, I think both. Uh, yes to both. Um, you know, the idea of enlightened society is not some kind of utopian society. It's, it's, it's more a society that's grounded in our, our recognition of the innate goodness of humanity and where we're uh, continually inspired just, just to take care of business, you know, like doing the laundry. You know, you never get the laundry done forever. We got to do the laundry every day. You got to do the dishes every day. You got to take care of your kids every day. So it's 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 a, a society of of people who are uh, connected to some faith in their own goodness and the goodness of others, uh, who feel good about humanity and 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 embrace a kind of fearlessness and and uh, 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 a commitment to to taking care of to taking care of everybody, to taking care of themselves, their children, their neighbors, and to take care of society. And and it's really bringing back in the humanity. You know, as long as we if we don't feel good about ourselves as human beings. We're going to create fear-based institutions that are going to have a lot of uh, 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 bring about a lot of collateral damage, basically. And uh, uh, so, I think we really have to shift the conversation to, to have the audacity to begin talking about human goodness and the goodness of humanity, and to and to try to begin creating institutions grounded in that, rather than always focusing on the lowest common denominator and creating all these fear-based institutions. Uh, that really uh, lose their humanity uh, so quickly. So I think it is possible, but I think it, I, I agree. I think it's something we're always working towards. It's not something. It's not something we're ever going to perfect. But I think we can see major shifts. And uh, um, and I and I have actually have, I have a lot of, in particular for the criminal justice system. I'm not naive about this at all. I'm like the least naive person in this work, and yet uh, I really have a, a strong, uh, positive sense of, of what's possible. Uh, today, just because, you know, the one great thing about the economic collapse of 2008, um, it, uh, it, it, which created so much damage to so many people and, and unfortunately led to no accountability for those who brought it about, 
but it did put the brakes on the prison, what sociologists call the prison industrial complex. There just wasn't any more money. The state started running out of money. And, you know, we've been siphoning funds out of every part of society that would take care of people and keep people out of prison to warehouse human beings as an industry. So that I think that they've recognized, at least for now, the party's over in terms of the growth of that industry. And uh, and there's a real possibility of, of downsizing the system and, and getting it to work better and, and focusing more on communities. And, and uh, you know, I think we're waking up to a lot, a lot of this very painful, you know. What we've seen with with all the violence against uh, African American young people at the hands of police in our, you know, this is very painful stuff to work with and recognize. And we don't want to demonize the police either, but but at the same time, we're grappling with this stuff, and I think it can lead to real uh, systemic and cultural change that, that'll be very positive. I actually have a a lot of hope for that today. And one last question for you, Fleet. You mentioned that your fourteen and a half years in prison, quote unquote woke you up. And, you know, I notice people use that term, waking up, spiritual awakening. They use it in different ways and mean different things. So I'd love to just know what that means to you, waking up, spiritual awakening. What does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was twofold at least. I mean, it's probably multidimensional. But on the one hand, I simply woke up to how I'd been leading my life. And that despite that I'd had been sincerely involved on a spiritual path that I'd been compartmentalizing my life and still allowing myself to make incredibly selfish decisions. And that I was still a good part of my life was still guided by, you know, my inner demons and, you know, childhood stuff. And I was not really leading a conscious life. And as a result, I was causing a lot of harm, even though at the same time I was doing, you know, good with parts of my life. So I woke up to the harm I'd been causing and experienced that deep regret and 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 I think in some ways the the real spiritual path or the path of human evolution, and we're always in it. But you could say it begins at that point where we at least have a profound desire to not cause any more harm, at least not cause any more harm. And I and I contacted, so I woke up to that, and that really that that became a a a, a lever for a tremendous change in my life. And then secondly, uh, to me, waking up means just becoming conscious, um, uh, which means that. Um, we start to have access to a, an awareness that is not consolidated in in our more mechanical conditioned nature. We can see the operation of our kind of fear-based and highly conditioned nature, which is part of our human survival. It's there. You couldn't be without it. Some of that conditioning and programming we have is useful and helpful. A lot of it's not so helpful, but it's not who we are. And to the extent that we can, at least it's not, certainly not all who we are. And to the extent that we get wake up to and become grounded in a um, an awareness that and a context that's outside of that more mechanical part of our nature, that's outside of the limited view of the self, uh, to me that changes everything, uh, and it changes our relationship to our everyday life, our moment-to-moment life. It changes our relationship to our own challenges and suffering. It it opens us to a much greater capacity to be with the suffering of others and to have uh, compassion for others. So I, I think that's uh, what, I, for me, the waking up was waking up to uh, the damage of my unconscious behaviors and then waking up to a, a context uh, uh, beyond the limited self, if you will, uh, from which to uh, uh, begin leading my life. I've been speaking with Fleet Mall, and if you're interested in knowing more about his work and supporting it, You can check out the Prison Mindfulness Institute at prisonmindfulness.org. 
and also a new division of the Prison Mindfulness Institute that's focused on transformational leadership training, engagedmindfulness.org. Fleet, thank you so much for all of your tremendous work and your great honesty and just forthrightness. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on, Pam. It's been a pleasure. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.